Well, good morning to you all. Our text today is from Ephesians 5, verse 18. So if you could please turn there now. When I was 16 years old, a friend of mine and I obtained by nefarious means a small bottle of brandy each. And that night we went with some friends to a stock car meeting during which I drank the whole bottle in about 15 minutes. And those of you who have done similarly stupid things will know what comes next. The truth is that the next 24 hours were among the most unpleasant ones of my life. I was dizzy and disorientated. I was assaulted. I was violently ill over and over for most of the following day. And I had a crushing headache. And that, friends, is what we called fun then. And sadly, for way too many people, it still seems to be the same today. Let me be clear. It isn't fun, and it isn't at all clever. Now, as we go on to read today's text, it may appear that it is just aimed squarely at the practice of consuming alcohol. It's a very simple message that really doesn't need much explanation. However, our passage today is far more profound than just an instruction not to get drunk. In fact, Charles Swindoll says this about it. I don't know of a more important verse in the New Testament for the Christian than Ephesians 5.18. Honest. No exaggeration. And John MacArthur echoes the importance of this doctrine, writing, If we do not obey this command, we cannot obey any other, simply because we cannot do any of God's will apart from God's Spirit. Outside of the command for unbelievers to trust in Christ for salvation, there is no more practical and necessary command in Scripture than the one for believers to be filled with the Spirit. Wow. That's lofty praise indeed. Unfortunately, since I lack either of these gentlemen's brains or education or of experience, I'm unable to say whether this really is the most important New Testament verse. But after the short time that I've spent preparing this sermon, I would find it hard to say that they are wrong because it speaks of a fundamental truth that will define the success or failure of every single believer's life. So, let's read it then. Ephesians 5, and I'm going to start in verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is that the matter of being Spirit-filled in preference to being ethanol-filled is not a separate subject to what we've previously read. Our text says, starting in verse 17, Then, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and... Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So for understanding purposes, we could quite safely leave out the bit about the wine and connect the two verses together like this. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, to be filled with the Spirit. So, just as John MacArthur has pointed out, there is clearly a direct connection between the Lord's will and all believers being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I guess we should pay attention then. 
At this point, it might seem natural to start asking and answering some questions about what a spirit-filled life looks like and means. But I'm going to leave that for a little bit because we ought to not gloss over this matter of drunkenness and dissipation because we're going to miss a few things if we do. The picture that we have here of being drunk isn't an accident. Although it is an important instruction to avoid a certain type of sin, it also points to the thoroughness that we ought to have in seeking to be filled with the Spirit. The original Greek informs us that the instruction is not merely to avoid having an alcoholic drink, but to avoid profound drunkenness, the kind where one is completely intoxicated. And to help in understanding the extent of the alcoholic effect, the same Greek word that is used here for drunk is used in a more positive sense in the Septuagint's version of Psalm 65. Now, when I'm talking about that, let's just remember that at one point in time, the Old Testament was translated into Greek because that was the common language of the time. So if you wanted to read the Old Testament, your first language was Greek, and you wanted to read it in your own language. So that was done. It was translated into Greek. And in that, uh, that version of Psalm 65, verses 9 and 10, they make this picture of drenching or soaking with water. It says, You visit the earth and water it, literally intoxicate it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. Now with these pictures of lush greenness fed by abundant waters, contrasting with those of the hopelessly inebriated tramp in mind, we can get a real vision of what the will of God is for us in terms of the fullness of spirits we ought to have. Because on one hand, we've got this picture of a man who's soaked in beer or wine with a slurred speech and, and behaving inappropriately, despicable. On the other hand, the man or woman soaked thoroughly in the Holy Spirit of God. But of course, with spectacularly different results. For they are clear in purpose and speech, behaving with dignity and respect, doing good works for the glory of the Lord. And we are being earnestly cautioned to avoid the first, but to covet the second. So, at this point, I want to ask the question, why do we drink? Why is drunkenness such an aspirational national sport? Well, my personal belief is that it has a very great deal to do with what we consider as a society to be freeing and fulfilling. Well, unfortunately, this is at odds with what we believe as Christians. The Lord created us to have a particular relationship with him back in the Garden of Eden, one that would perfectly satisfy our every want or need. Well, unfortunately, that wasn't enough for us, and so we chose to sin instead, and, and we lost that life of ease. We were cast out of the garden and cursed to live a life of difficulty instead as part of our punishment. And although we have lost the garden and that intended relationship with God too, we have never lost the need for the completion that those things gave us. And this is the source of the aching void within every human that longs to be filled. And so we try and try and try to make its insistent voice quiet by drinking or fishing or playing some sport or whatever, telling ourselves all the time that this has deep meaning, as in completely fulfilling. But in our hearts, we know that it isn't. And so tomorrow, 
or weekend, whatever, we'll try just a bit harder for some more beers or a bigger fish or to go a bit faster around the racetrack. As Christians, we need to be very careful not to fall into this trap too. Because it is part of what we might call normal society. We might compartmentalize our lives and say, well, this box in my life is for church and this box in my life is for sport. They're different. But are they? Are we genuinely just enjoying the blessings that God has given us? Because I'd be lying if I said that God doesn't want us to enjoy his creation. That he never gives us the means or the abilities to do exciting things. And that what he wants his people to be is doer and serious folk with a pitchfork. Always working, always dull. He doesn't want that. He, he made us to enjoy his creation. But we should never forget that when we do so, it is his gift. And he is the one who has given us the means to do so. And since this is so, making a separate box for sport or whatever and trying to fill it up with experiences is a misguided effort to satisfy that part of us which ought to be filled only and particularly with his spirit. But there's something worse here too. Because when we live like that, it's a slap to our Father's face because we are giving our hearts to creation and not the Creator. So, let's be very cautious about what we trust to fulfill us and clear on why we do it. Our text today talks specifically about drink and by God's grace we might not be troubled by that particular vice, but there are a whole bunch of other things that can cause us the same sort of problems if we don't set them in the right perspective against our relationship with our Lord. But they all have the same potential for the same result. This dissipation that Paul is talking about here. Well, dissipation is a word that describes the act of scattering or dispersion. And in this case, we're talking about dissipated mind or character. Instead of being steadfast and focused on serving God, the dissipated person wanders from object to object in pursuit of pleasure and usually wasting a lot of time and money. Now bearing in mind what we've already said about the lengths from this verse back to verse 17, do you think that this kind of life choice would be wise or unwise? Is it the will of God for us? Of course not. God has a purpose and a plan for our lives and we must fix our eyes on him at all times and for all things and it is in him and in him only that we will find complete satisfaction. It is focus that we need, not scattering. Now just to be clear on the danger of dissipation, that it isn't just time and opportunity that's lost, let me tell you a little bit about the Greek word that Paul uses here. It's the word associa. Okay, and it's related to another word. This is the way Greek works is they seem to build bits onto words and, and uh, change the meaning slightly. It's related to this word asotos. Now if you dig back to what your English teacher tried to tell you in about 1642, you might remember that words that start with A, like this, tell us that they are without something, which in this case is sozo, which means saving. So, a sozo means without saving. 
So our word for dissipation has a mother word that literally means that which cannot be saved. It's the picture of having no hope of safety, a waste that is irretrievable. And of course, since we're talking about a person's spiritual life here, what we are really saying is that they will not be saved from the wrath of God by living this way. They aren't just having some harmless fun. There are serious and real consequences. Does this describe you? What is your thing? Skydiving? Bridge? Fishing? Collecting watches? Budgies? How much does it matter to you? Has it come to mean everything, that you cannot wait to get away and do it at the expense of more important things? If so, then know this. Then you are at risk of this no saving. That if you do not set Jesus as Lord of your life, then all that effort will be for nothing. Because when you die, having the very biggest marlin on your lounge wall caught with the very lightest tackle will not gain you entry to heaven. Because that gift comes only through the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross for your sins. And so we should all be very wary of the potential for this dissipation in our lives. Well, now it's time for the million dollar question. What does it mean when it says here that we ought to be filled with the Spirit? And going on now to talk about the second part of today's verse, the first thing that I want to get out of the way is, is that it is not the Pentecostal proposal of a second experience known most commonly as the baptism in the Holy Spirit. However, that said, I'm certainly not going to heap scorn on the idea because although I'm very dubious about the scenes that we've all seen on TV of masses of people being slain in the Spirit whenever the minister even points his finger in their direction. I'm also aware that many genuine Christians report transformation in their lives after experiencing baptism in the Holy Spirit. Just for example, prayer and Bible study become more meaningful and they find a special joy in worship. And these are not things to be sneered at because something of eternal worth has clearly happened. So what is going on? If this is not a second experience event, then what is it? There has to be some kind of answer. But before I go on to suggest what that might be, unfortunately I do need to go through a bit of a process. I first want to explain why I have said that I don't believe in baptism of the Holy Spirit of the Pentecostal kind, and in fact why this is not Wanganui East's position in our stat statement of faith. Well, Pentecostals base their belief on two main bits of scripture. Firstly, Jesus' disciples were clearly believers long before the day of Pentecost. Pretty obvious, isn't it? Yet in Acts 2, following Jesus' earlier instruction to wait in Jerusalem, specifically to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, we read about this amazing event where the power of the Spirit is poured out on them in a special event. And just as an aside might seem very obvious, but in case you've ever wondered why we've got this label of Pente Pentecostals for that group of believers today, well, that's why. <laughs> and secondly, there is a passage in Acts 19 describing Paul baptising 12 disciples in the name of Jesus, following which the Holy Spirit comes on them so that they speak in tongues and prophesy. So, these are, these are real scriptures. They're in the Bible. 
And they suggest a pattern where Christians are born again and then later on are baptised in the Holy Spirit. And since it is scripture, we all ought to do this. Right? Right? Well, usually I'd be saying yes, but not today because there's some more thinking that needs to be done. However, before I, I lead us through that, I do want to give credit to Wayne Grudem's summary on this matter in his book, Systematic Theology, because it's his logic that I'm going to be working through, and that's simply because I'm not clever enough to organise these thoughts as well as he does. So first up, we have to ask, what is baptism in the Holy Spirit? So we'll have a look at the Bible, for instances, where this term is specifically mentioned. And it turns out that there are seven instances of this in the New Testament where we read about somebody being baptised in the Holy Spirit. And the first four are all variations in the various Gospels of John the Baptist talking about what Jesus will do. Now I'll just read one from Matthew 3 as an example. I indeed baptise you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now you should note that most translations, like this one, use the word with the Holy Spirit rather than in the Holy Spirit. And it's difficult to derive any specifics about exactly what this phrase means, except that it's going to be Jesus who will do the baptism and it will be performed on those who follow him. The next two verses are in the book of Acts and they use pretty much the same words. And again, it's with rather than in the Holy Spirit. And the last instance of the term is the most interesting, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 12:13, And it reads, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Now this verse uses different terminology, doesn't it? Because it says by one spirit rather than with. And this difference is emphasised by those of a Pentecostal persuasion to point to as evidence of this second experience baptism. In the first six verses that we've looked at, Jesus is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. However, in 1 Corinthians here, it is the Holy Spirit who does the baptising. Do you see the difference? However, there are two problems with this position. And the first and the most obvious is this word, all. We were all baptised into one body. What Paul is really saying here is that every single one of the Corinthians who had this experience had it at the moment they became Christians. And not at some other separate point in time. And as a result of the experience that they had the moment they became Christians, they all became members of the body of Christ. And that's completely at odds with the idea of a second experience. The second problem is that although there is this difference of with and in, in English translations, in fact, the original Greek does not support this as being a variation that justifies creating a new doctrine. What we are reading about in every single one of these seven instances is the same thing, and it happens at the moment of conversion, not later. And exactly what it is, we've still got a little way to go, we'll get to it in a bit. So that's very nice then. 
it's clear that the Spirit comes with salvation. But it does still leave us with the problem of explaining events at Pentecost because we cannot ever say that Pentecost never happened. Now, as I've already said, there's lots of evidence that the disciples were born again long before they came to Pentecost, which might seem to support the idea of this later encounter with the Spirit. And just to give you some example of, of why we would say it's clear that they're born again, uh, when Peter answers Jesus' question, who do you say I am, in Matthew 16, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, how would he be able to say that if he did not have the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in his heart and if he hadn't started his spiritual rebirth in Christ? So if the disciples were saved earlier and spirit-filled later then, would the same process not be true for modern Christians? Well, the answer to that question lies in the understanding that not all things in Scripture are intended for all peoples and all times. And this, for example, is why today we do not follow the, the many apparently strange rules in Deuteronomy. And as I shall explain, this holds true for Pentecost as well. It's obviously a very important moment in Scripture, but perhaps we don't fully appreciate its significance as a moment in time. I say that time because it heralds a point in change between the work of the Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant, and that is the law that we heard spoken about earlier, and the work of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant, which is the provision of Christ as Saviour. If we study this, we see that up to the point of Pentecost, we can see that the Holy Spirit works in earthly affairs in one way, but after Pentecost, he is working in a different one. The Holy Spirit's activities under the Old Covenant seem to be a lot less extensive than they do under the New. For example, only a few people seem to have been enabled by him with special power for ministry. Moses is quoted as longing for the day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people, which kind of suggests a general lack of his general presence. And when we look at people's general spiritual ability too, there doesn't seem to be much evidence of power over the activities of Satan. For example, we don't read much about the casting out of demons in the Old Testament. And lastly, the Old Covenant work of the Holy Spirit seems to be almost entirely confined to the nation of Israel. In contrast, the New Testament is positively heaving with examples of his work. It begins with Jesus when the Spirit descends on him at his baptism and then we begin to see how his power will be manifest as Jesus casts out demons with a word he heals the sick and begins to teach with that extraordinary authority. However, the disciples are not part of this as individuals. It's true that they do similar work before Pentecost, but it seems that that must have been done as extensions of Jesus' empowerment rather than through their own infilling with the Spirit. I mean, if it were not so, then why would they have had to have the Pentecost experience at all? It was, after all, the same kind of work being carried out afterwards. The principal difference is obviously that their previous power source, Jesus, is gone. He's ascended to heaven, and so they needed a personal dose of the Holy Spirit's power to carry on the ministry of the gospel. 
We can conclude then that Pentecost is not a model of the need for a second experience filling with the Holy Spirit. It's not extra to salvation, but it is an example of a specific God, a part of God's plan being worked out for a particular group of people and done for a particular moment of change. We here today live deep in the time of the new covenant. The change from old to new is 2,000 years behind us and hence there is no need for the Holy Spirit to be given in this way. Now, although we have arrived at this understanding, I did say, that it is, did say earlier that it's inappropriate to dismiss the transforming experience that many believers report as a result of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Clearly, God is genuinely at work in their lives. So, what is going on? Unfortunately, we're still missing some vital information. We may know what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not, but we haven't actually looked yet at exactly what it is. As believers, we commonly speak about being born again, a term that is used many, many times in Scripture. Just one example is in John 3.3 where Jesus is addressing Nicodemus. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the fancy theological term for being born again is a thing called regeneration. And it's defined as a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. And we don't have any part to play in this work. It is just done by God, and it is done instantaneously. And exactly what happens to us at that moment is unclear, But we do know that we who were spiritually dead have been made alive again. Some of what happens is is, uh, illustrated by the prophecy made in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So it's clear that in a very real sense we are no longer the people that we were before God did his work. Now I'm using this term God, which is a generic term for the Trinity, isn't it? So we might ask which parts of that union do the work? Well in John 3, Jesus says this, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So it's very clear that the Holy Spirit is one part of the Trinity that has a fundamental part in this act of regeneration. However, we also know that the Father participates too. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, in this mysterious union between Father and Holy Spirit, believers become a new creature. But it doesn't just end there. It's not as though they do this thing and then say, off you go now and play, be a good boy. The Holy Spirit remains with every believer throughout the rest of their mortal life. Earlier in Ephesians 1, we're told that the Spirit 
is our seal and guarantee of inheritance. Now think about a seal. Okay, you know a wax seal on something. If you go to the trouble of putting a seal of authenticity on an envelope or an important document, it's not intended to be there temporarily because if the seal is gone, then so is the authority. Once we are saved, we are always filled by the Holy Spirit so that it can be proved to anyone who might ask that we belong to the family of God. There will be no need to go off looking for him in other ways or places. He is always with us. And it has to be said, that is a very special privilege. We must be careful not to misunderstand this picture though. Our God is a God of power and action. If his spirit is within us as a seal, it's not as an inert and useless blob of wax. He is there to work in and with us. He will not stay still. So what does he do? Well, firstly, he empowers. The Holy Spirit enables us by divine strength to do things that we could never ever do on our own. He is the one who gives spiritual gifts that enable believers to carry out ministry and he gives us the ability to resist spiritual opposition to the preaching of the gospel and to do God's work in people's lives. And then he purifies. The Holy Spirit cleanses us from sin when we are born again and then helps us to continue growing into a way of life where we sin less and less. And remember this word, helps us. Okay? He just doesn't do that by himself. We do it with him. And as part of this process, he brings out the, the positive fruit of himself in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit also reveals. He gives evidence of God's presence and guides and directs God's people. He enables believers to understand scripture and things of God and he gives us assurance of us, our salvation. And the final thing that he does is that he unifies. In 2 Corinthians, Paul finishes his writing with a blessing that is very commonly repeated today as a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The church isn't a building. The church is a community of God's people joined together by superglue. No. They are eternally bonded together by the common gift of the Holy Spirit within their hearts. So finally, we can get to an answer about the troublesome results of that baptism and the Holy Spirit thing. Why does it make a difference? What's this? Within the community of the church, although each believer definitely has the Spirit, their day-to-day individual experience of Him will vary widely. Some have been faithful and obedient servants of God for a long while, but some have just begun that walk. Others may not have been so obedient or faithful. Our feeling of the Spirit's presence will ebb and flow, and so will our outward expression 
of the work that he does within us because of the drag of sin in our lives. And this is why sometimes we just need a top-up, really. This is why for so many people there is a definite life change after being baptized in the Spirit. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that when we participate in a moment where we might do something like confess our sins and repent of them, that we might trust in Christ to forgive them, commit our lives to his service, and then believe that he will empower us for his ministry, that something special is going to happen. It isn't a new thing, but more of the same thing that we were promised in the very beginning. This is a miracle of grace beyond describing or understanding, that instead of just writing us off as useless when we fail, God picks us up and cleans us up and steadies us to try again. Most importantly, it is only in this space, the spirit-filled space, where we will find the peace of heart that we all crave and the power for a victorious Christian life. No amount of anything else in the whole of creation will give us these things. The Holy Spirit has the power and he has the task and he will not fail. If we engage with him, we will not ever see these things if we do not ask for his help or listen to his promptings. And this sounds so very obvious, but it is most often where we failed. If you have been hoping that through this sermon you are going to receive some radical insights about how a believer can be spirit-filled, then I think you are going to be disappointed. Because the answer is simply this. Ask him and then obey him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your spirit. Lord, I'm sorry that we don't acknowledge him more because he does such a marvelous and profound work in every single one of us. Lord, I pray that we would be awake to that and that we would seek his help actively every day and that we would listen when he helps us. Thank you so much for that provision, that we are not ever alone. Thank you for your spirit, Lord. Glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.